One of the pastors here, thanks so much for coming today, especially if you're brand new, welcome to our church. Uh, we are in the Gospel of John right now, and Peter was hinting at that, uh, or stating explicitly, I don't know if you actually said this, but um, we are in John, have been for a little while, most of you know that, but if you're just here for the first time, um, that's where we're at, so now you know. Uh, but we're in John 6, 41 to 59 today, uh, so if you have a Bible or a phone up, please feel free to turn there, but I'll have this on screen in a second. Uh, but just to catch you up, uh, Jesus just got done feeding the 5,000, one of his more famous miracles, uh, by multiplying a little bit of fish and loaves into enough uh, to sufficiently feed just a mass of people. And that uh, has morphed into a discourse on how Jesus is now self-identifying as the bread of life himself. And so it's one of those times in the Gospels, you don't have, we don't have a lot of these necessarily, but sometimes Jesus uh, teaches in a parable or does a miracle that's uh, amazing. And then he says, uh, this is what it means. And this is one of those places where he's basically saying, this is what I just did. This is what I symbolized with my actions, with the miracle itself. He's saying, uh, you, what you saw here uh, uh, with the feeding of the 5,000 has deeper significance than, than you think. Uh, so really he's saying, the miracle was about me. Uh, not about your stomachs, and, which is a helpful theological principle for life in general, uh, and, and that is things happen to us for, for better or for worse for the sake of drawing us to Jesus. This is how, uh, and we don't all, most of the time we probably don't even know, uh, you know what God's doing, but uh, he, he is interested in doing things in our life. In this case, it was a, it was a miracle, but it could be something very, um, very small and subtle, uh, but he does things for the sake of drawing us to himself. And it's easy to miss that, to miss the forest for the trees, no matter how much we know it. Uh, but part of what Jesus is saying here is small things, whether gifts or sufferings, are meant to lead us to him. And so have that in mind as we go. That's not the only thing going on. There's actually a lot more complexity, in, uh, but that's really one of the big, I would say, you know, big facets of the diamond is to look at it and say, Jesus is saying, I'm doing things in the world to lead you somewhere else. So we can't stay with the thing. We have to go to the other thing. And Jesus is that thing. He's saying, I am the bread. I am the bread of life. I am what you need. I'm not pointing to it. I am it. And that shift is something that I think came up a couple weeks ago as well. It, no, one, no one talks that way. It's one of the, one of the uh, markers of, de- of his deity that we look to um, as biblicists or Christians, or, you know, we, he's just different. He doesn't talk like a teacher. He talks uh, like someone much greater. So today, we're going to talk about, today is part two of three, actually. So if you're just joining, uh, two weeks ago before Easter, we did part one. Today's part two. Next week's part three. Uh, just breaking it up for the sake of length. It's just a very complex, beautiful, wonderful passage of Scripture, unique to John as well. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't have this, this discourse, and so... Um, we wanted to spend some time in it. So we're going to go uh, from 41 to 59 today. Feel free to follow along on screen. I'm going to break it up into two parts. So we'll start by reading the first uh, 10 or 11 verses here, beginning in verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father has come to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. 
I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. All right, so if you were to kind of summarize this uh, in, a, in a few words, this first part anyway, Jesus is kind of saying a couple of things. He's saying, uh, don't grumble because I'm here. So there's an exhortation, almost a warning. Uh, don't grumble because they were about what he's saying. Uh, but then he talks about himself and, and the Father, God the Father, and, and he is God the Son, and the benefits that, that he brings uh, as well. So they play off each other. So we'll talk about that. Uh, but I want to start by pointing out this uh, very important biblical connection. This is, I think, the, at least in this, if we start in verse 41 anyway, uh, the, the first and most primary one to make is uh, off of this word grumble. Um, if you read the Old Testament before, uh, it might ring a few bells. But it has to do with how um, this idea of the Jews grumbling here is a pretty explicit callback to when Israel grumbled about the manna bread in the Old Testament and about living in the desert and their circumstances coming up out of Egypt uh, and also uh, grumbling at their leadership, grumbling at Moses and Aaron uh, and just not being too happy about them, but also that they weren't in leadership. They grumbled about that as well. So uh, it's a very comprehensive theme and it's its, its own sermon series. So we're just going to scratch the surface today, but there are a couple of places, especially in the book of Numbers, where this comes up. And so I'll just go through this kind of quickly in uh, 11 and 16. First of all, in 11, it says, and again, the Israelites started complaining and said, if we only had meat to eat, we remember the fish we had in Egypt at no cost, also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this bread, this manna that um, God graciously and faithfully gave every morning to, to sustain them in the desert. All right, so on, on one level, there's um, a loss of appetite. There is, oh my gosh, it's the same thing every day. There is Egypt, even though we were, in, we were literally slaves, they're, they're, they're not thinking clearly, but they're saying life was almost better because we had um, more of a buffet. All right, then in number 16, a few chapters later, they grumble at leadership when it says they assembled, some of the Jews anyway, assembled against Moses and Aaron, God's appointed priests and leaders and deliverer figures, and said, you've gone too far. For all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? All right, so essentially they're saying, we're all capable of leading, why are you in leadership? Why do you get to take the baton? Why do you have the staff? We're just, just as good as, as you, if not better. And later in verse 11, it actually uses the word grumble. It says, uh, Moses says, what is Aaron that you grumble against him? So uh, same word in both contexts. And actually that word grumble or some form of that word is strewn throughout the narratives of the book of Numbers and beyond into the rest of the Pentateuch um, as, as well. All right, so... Um, the reason I'm sharing this is because these are the stories that help us understand John 6. This, these stories, I would say, are the divinely appoint, uh, appointed predecessors to Jesus' life and Jesus' teachings, and this, uh, this story in particular. And so, so that now in John 6, we have a revisitation of those earlier stories. But this time, the Jews are grumbling against the new Moses, who is Jesus, and this time, they're grumbling against the new manna bread, which is also Jesus. You guys see the correlation there? So then the question becomes, well, why do they grumble? 
And is there such a thing as a theology of grumbling? Or maybe you're just thinking, you look at the pattern and you're saying, why is the Bible so chock full of people getting upset about bread? And why do they want buffets more, something else? Or, or, or why is the Bible so chock full of people rejecting Moses-like figures, uh, Jesus being the second one? Uh, those are great questions to ask. Uh, but to the question of, is there such a thing as a theology of grumbling, um, I think there is. There, there, the answer to that is yes. And, and elsewhere in Numbers 16, I don't have this on screen, but it gives us an initial hint as to what it is. It says, it is against the Lord that you and your company have gathered. So um, when they assemble against leadership, uh, what Moses says is actually you're assembling against God who chose the leadership. You're, you don't think you're sinning against God, but you are. Um, and so uh, when we look at that and we look at the manna, um, the sin of grumbling against leaders and against the bread is kind of a twofold thing. It is the sin of self-promotion. I can do it better. I should be in leadership. Um, and the sin of self-reliance. Um, I'm enough. And uh, I don't need what God has to give. Um, there are other types of food out there that are just as good. Uh, and a lot, of it, a lot of it comes from me. Like, I produce it. All right, so to reject Moses was to reject God. To reject the bread was to reject the one who gave the bread. That's another way of looking at it. Um, in John 6, then, to grumble against Jesus is to self-promote. It is to self-rely. It's to put ourselves in his place, uh, essentially. Especially when he makes these kinds of claims. And that's why we're kind of taking this scenic route here through numbers, is that um, all these things are connected, and, uh, and we're in this story as well. So even though we're not, like, right here, uh, Israel and the Jews, whether in the Old Testament, in the book of Numbers, or here in, uh, in Capernaum, uh, outside the, uh, on the side of the Sea of Galilee, it's like with Jesus, it's, it's the same. Like they are microcosms of the human experience. It tells a lot about ourselves and the nature of the gospel too. But if you kind of back up though and think about what the crowds in John 6 are probably thinking about Jesus at this moment where he's talking about himself so much, uh, especially when we sprinkle in some of this Numbers 11 and 16, they're probably thinking, like, whoa, 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 Jesus. Like, you, when, when you were multiplying bread and filling our stomachs, we were interested, but now you got to go and talk about yourself as the bread? As if we need you? Like, not just what you're pointing at, like it's a lesson, as if we can achieve it or go get it over there and walk to it with our, the muscles in our legs. But now you're saying, you're the solution? Like, this is getting really weird. Uh, isn't this the Jesus that we knew from Galilee? They said as well, the, the son of Joseph, like we know his mom and dad. I babysat for him. Like I knew him when he was eight years old. And so, but if you think about it, like behind those statements is an echo of the grumbling in the book of Numbers. It's, it's the grumbling of, I am better. I am enough. That's actually one we hear in our culture a lot, right? I am enough. Like you are enough. And Jesus here, in many and various ways, is saying, absolutely not. Uh, but it's problematic for this culture, just like it is for us, because it's a, it's a burn. It's a, it's a strike at our pride. But the, the grumbling is, I'm wiser, I'm not, I'm not that needy. I'm a good person, too. I'm, I'm sufficient. What gives him the right to make these claims? Or you could maybe put it in these words. Uh, who put you in charge? Jesus, this, that, that's actually a, almost a direct um, verbatim reference to Exodus 2, 
Remember that story where Moses first comes on the scene and they're in Egypt and there's this Hebrew getting beaten up by an Egyptian and Moses comes on and, and saves the guy and kills the Egyptian? Almost right away, the guy's like, who put you in charge? It's like, dude, he just like saved your life, you know? Like, why are you so upset about, like, already you want the mantle? Like, it's uh, very actually damning. And you see that kind of go forward, but it's actually way back right when Moses comes on the scene. They, it's like, we just had this instinct. We don't want people to be over us. Like, it's hard because it's, it's kind of like in the white space of just, just that reality is you're not in the higher position. And what is that saying about you? It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, humble, it's humbling to be a follower, right? Or to not be in, in the first place. And that, and that is, that's the human condition. Um, or, or just this, uh, I'm pretty capable too, you know? And when you add on top of that, the sin of Israel wanting Egyptian food more than the manna that God graciously gave them to have, you, you had this idea of, I lost my appetite for Jesus. I want something more, something else to satisfy my wider palette of spirituality. Uh, and, and when I put it in these words, to be clear, I'm saying this is very common for Christians to think this way. I'm not saying this is a, an apostate or someone leaving the faith thinking, oh, Jesus is boring me now. I'm saying this is actually uh, for, this is something Christians uh, deal with. I, I want something more than just him. I want something else that he has to give me, like some other of his benefits, um, you know, physical comforts or just other kinds of teaching. Um, that would be akin to Israel in the Old Testament saying, I want the onions and the leeks. I want the melons from Egypt. The man is not enough is exactly the same as saying Jesus is not enough. Exactly. That's, that's the Bible saying. Exactly the same. So the former stories are interpreted by the latter stories. So again, to say that God's provision is not enough is to say Jesus isn't enough, which is to say um, I'm enough. It's to say, I have something to, to bring and to provide and to give. Um, and so Jesus is responding to all of that. He, he says, uh, don't grumble, which is a warning or, or an exhortation, but also part of the spirit of that is, don't grumble because I'm here, which is an encouragement. He says uh, many things, but in verse 44, one of the big things is, um, by way of encouragement, is no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And then he goes on to say, as the prophets say, this is from Isaiah 54, I believe, all will be taught by God, which is to say, no one teaches themselves when it comes to salvation. Like when you see that phrase, all will be taught by God, well, that's kind of a strange thing for Jesus to quote. Actually, it makes perfect sense he would quote that here when you put the emphasis on by God, because what he's saying is you can't self-teach your way into God's kingdom. You, you can't find him. Uh, you can't do enough good to turn his head. You can't be obedient enough. All of that's off the table. If this is true, all, they will all, all the ones who, who are saved, all the ones who will come to the Father need to be drawn. All, the one who come, all those who come to the Son need to be drawn. They need to have softened, heart, softened hearts made within them. They need to be taught by God. And again, against the backdrop of what we just talked about with the core of sin being grumbling, uh, here at least, this makes perfect sense. He would say this, right? Uh, he, he's saying you don't have to, he's, he's not just saying don't grumble, that's the warning. He's encouraging them by saying you don't have to rely on yourselves anymore. You don't have to. You're free. 
You don't have to rely on your works anymore. Rest in the fact that God is at work saving you much more than you are at saving yourself. That's what he's saying. I don't know if you guys have seen uh, the first Doctor Strange movie. Anybody seen that? 2017, I think. A couple of nods. Uh, for two of you, this will make sense. No, you don't have to have seen it. But um, one of my favorite uh, little clips, I guess, uh, in any of the Marvel movies um, is from that movie. And it's funny because it's not even that exciting. It's a death scene. It's like bummer, you know. But um, it, has, it has to do with this moment where, if you've seen it, you can maybe recognize this little shot here. But um, this woman, her name is, uh, which is called the Ancient One. She's a, a sorcerer supreme. She's a She's like a mentor and a teacher to Dr. Strange, but she's dying. And her last words are in this scene. And I'm just going to read a clip of it. I was going to show the clip, but it's like if you haven't seen the movie, it wouldn't have made a lot of sense, uh, most of it. But this little clip, this little excerpt is, um, is, is the key part. And I'll, uh, let me just read it here. So she starts by saying, uh, You always excelled, but not because you crave success, but because of your fear of failure. It's what made me a great doctor. It's precisely what kept you from greatness. Arrogance and fear still keep you from learning the simplest and most significant lesson of all, which is, it's not about you. And I share this to say that this is, um, in a way, exactly what's going on in John 6. Is John 6 is um, the epitome of a teachable moment. Uh, Jesus is teaching them about the meaning of life. And the meaning of life Though there might be many ways to conceptualize it, is biblically speaking, it's not about you. Life is not about I actually share with uh, couples that I officiate weddings for when I do premarital, I say one of the most important lessons of all for marriage is for you to understand marriage is not about you. It's not, it has nothing to do with you, actually. It's, it's a gift maybe you're sharing in, but when you understand that marriage is created by God before you were a speck of whatever, um, yeah, uh, and, then, and that you walked into something that was given, not earned, and that God wants to tell a story through your marriage. Um, it's, until you kind of understand that, you're going you're gonna to deify your spouse, you're, you're gonna, or the idea of a spouse. You're going to deify the idea of, oh, if I just have a spouse, I'm going to be, you know, um, but, so it's, it's for singles too, but, but for, for married couples especially, like, marriage is not about you. And, but for all of you, married or not, life's not about you. Like, you, you are here at the, at the bidding of God because he wanted to make you. And when it comes to the gospel and salvation, uh, which is, you know, you could say a subset of theology, but it's the cornerstone, it's everything, is it's not about you there either. And, and this is, again, what Jesus is keep, keeps coming back to by way of centralizing himself and not you, his work and not yours, God teaches all. No one self-teaches. God gives the bread. We don't produce it. Like, until we understand that, we, we can't be saved. You know, it's like, to borrow some words then from Dr. Sh- Dr. Strange, um, it's like Jesus is saying, arrogance and fear keep you from learning the simplest and most significant lesson of all, which is you are saved by grace and you have much less to do with your salvation than you ever thought possible. It's not about you. The bread that I offer you comes down from heaven, not out from within you. And I am that bread. Okay, so the passage continues, and the Jews respond how you might think. They don't understand. They, I mean, none of us would. But they're, like, they're still like, what? 
And so they, uh, and I'll read this passage and we'll come back, but they say in 52, they disputed among themselves. So there, there becomes this kind of intra-crowd debate. I'm like, what is he saying? But in 52, they disputed and they said, how can this man give us his, give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Okay, so basically, like, for summarize this, you know, the Jews, are, the Jews are more confounded, you could say, right? I mean, Jesus doesn't, like, step back or backpedal, right? He's like, oh, this, this, I'm losing the room here. Let me backpedal. Like, he goes more in and dials it up and says, no, just to be clear, you have to eat my body. Like, is this hard to understand? You know, he doesn't say that, but um, they don't, but they don't, right? And not, it's not only that it's weird, it's, um, he's misunderstood, but it's also, like, problematic when it comes to understanding the law of the Old Testament as they knew it. Uh, and so I want to add this layer here, but there's lots of good news in this as well. But the, the reason why it's weird is not because it's weird, but because drinking blood wasn't uh, allowed in the Old Testament. It was prohibited by Old Testament law. Uh, Leviticus 17.12 says, Therefore, God speaking, I have said to the people of Israel, No person among you shall eat blood. Neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. And you might, like, if you're just reading the Bible for the first time, you come across that law, you're like, well, that's really weird. We don't do that anymore. Like, we eat, I like my steak, steak medium rare, you know, or whatever. Um, but it's, it's odd. But we get to the New Testament, we understand that Jesus changes things. And the theology, a lot of times in the Bible, is in the adjustment. It's in the change or the contrast between Old and New Testaments. They are different. If you didn't know that, they, they are. I know some of you may have not read the Bible before, but they're called Old and New because they're different. If there weren't two different things, there'd be, and the one testament of God, or the one monocovenant, or the, the one covenant of God. But it, that's not how the Bible presents. It's very Old, New, very uh, former, uh, latter very uh, promise fulfillment, very anticipating to finish line uh, language. Shadow reality, another one the Bible uses uh, a lot of. All right? But you can't get any more opposite than this. Right? I would even use the word contradictory. If you're not comfortable with that word, then just think major, major tension and difference. God is changing the law here. Moses said, drink blood. Jesus says, don't drink blood. Jesus says, drink blood. This should remind, remind you of uh, Matthew 5, where, where Jesus says, Moses said this, but I'm saying this to you. I'm saying something different. And where he comes back and forth in a few laws there to make a point about himself, about the kingdom. We're not going to look at that today, but sa- same idea. We've also seen this in this book and how he's handled the Sabbath, being a Sabbath breaker, redefining rest around himself spiritually, not the law anymore. Things are changing. He also said in verse 58, the bread I give you is not like the bread the fathers ate and died. So again, the bread is not like, I'm not like continuing what God did. I'm changing, changing what he did in the Old Testament. Because the Testaments 
were built on different rules and stipulations. So the laws are changing from old to new, the bread is changing from old to new, and the testaments are changing from old to new. Jeremiah 31 says, I'm going to make a covenant with you to Israel, not like the covenant that I made with Israel when they came up out of Egypt, the first testament or covenant. It's going to be not like that one. Not a, not a 1B, but a brand new thing, a 2.0. It's something totally different. Apples to oranges. Apples to oranges. So th- this new thing here, when Jesus says, now I want you to drink blood, and not just that, but it's mine, uh, that new command here in John 6 is a crack in the foundation of the old system. Uh, the old system kept us from drinking. The new system invites us to drink. The old system said, stay away. The new says, come close. The old system parched us with its unkeepable laws and commandments and rules. We were skin and bones trying to stay in covenant with God based on our moral acuity. But as Hebrews 7.12 says, for when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. And the priesthood in the Bible has changed. We know this in part in the Gospel of John. It's changed from Moses to Jesus. From the tribe of the Levites to the tribe of the Judahites. That's part of his big argument in Hebrews 7 is that even the tribes are different. It's like Jesus is breaking the rules here wholesale, without question. Something brand new and with him, new laws around him are coming. Not like the old ones. This is, this is in part why we're seeing him comfortably uh, break the rules. I'm telling you to do something that Moses said you shouldn't do, that God said you shouldn't do. But he is God. He's the son of God. He has the right to change the rules. He wrote them for his own purpose. He wrote them to be broken. So Jesus would come to give a better rule, a better law, a better mediatorial office, a better grace, a better love, a greater hope. In fact, you, when Jesus talks in these terms about the bread, uh, the, the, the law then changes from do this and you will live, the bread of which leads to death, to believe and you will live, the bread of which uh, leads to life. Um, there's this greater movement in the Bible from do, 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 keep, 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 abstain, 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 to just believe and receive. And if you were to put it in those words, there's many ways to say it, but that's really what he's saying here as well when he says the bread comes down. Uh, in fact, um, Genesis 3 in the Old Testament says, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. In other words, by work. By your work. That's how you'll eat bread. You'll sweat. You'll have callus on your hands. You'll have cuts on them. But you'll have bread. But it'll come through your work. But that's, that's the Old Testament. The New Testament's different. The New Testament never says you will have bread by, your, by the sweat of your brow. Ever. Isn't that good news? You'll ne- the New Testament never says you'll have the bread of God or salvation based on your sweat. Ever. Isn't that amazing? Maybe you guys knew that. But if you ever read the New Testament, I, I just, that's just good news. It never says it. Covenants are different. So in John 6, we have the bread, the, now the bread comes down out of heaven by grace. It's received. So the law The law exemplifies this later when it comes into history. It says, do, 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 keep, 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 observe, 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 obey, obey, obey. But we never could. Israel never could. The world never could. You never could. I never could. Ever. That was the point. God didn't fail. 
He knew it was going to fail to give way to the better system, which is a, a different type of sourced bread. God sources his bread from himself, not from your amazingness, not from your works, not from your thoughts. And so he keeps the focus then on himself. Uh, Jesus, in this passage, he raises the bar. He says, I'm the most important thing, me. And if he wasn't God, that would be arrogance. That would be sin. You know, uh, it's actually what led people to turn tail and run. We'll see that next week. If you didn't know that, it's coming. I'll kind of wreck next week a bit. But half the crowd leaves based off what he says here. Um. But he says, I'm the most important thing. My impending death and resurrection are your true food. That's all you need. Period. Period. It's like Israel in the Old Testament had the one food, and it was sinful to want more. Something else, right? Now, this is not cannibalism, uh, though it's, it's a metaphor. Though it's interesting that the early Christians uh, were thought of by others to be cannibals because they talked about communion in, in these terms so much. Christians were so marked by the practice of eating bread and wine as representative of Jesus' body and blood that, that uh, many of the Romans you know, thought, oh, these are just these crazy cannibals, you know, which is really, I think it's kind of cool. You know, I'm like, I don't think that's a loss for the kingdom. It's a huge misunderstanding, obviously. The Christians are like, it's a metaphor, guys, come on. But, um, but actually, it, we do so much talk about eating our Savior, and we're not embarrassed by that. We're not ashamed because we believe his words. And so, but that aside, like, this language is supposed to be uncomfortable because it conveys how things need to suffer before they're eaten, right? Whether animals or plants, they suffer in some way, And they die in order that we might benefit from them. Even bread is broken before it's eaten. And before the bread is made, the wheat is beaten in order to make the flour that in turn makes the bread. It's around us every day. Suffering precedes nourishment. Every day, you and I see this, not even thinking. This morning, you you shared in that reality probably if you had breakfast. Uh, even coffee. Uh, some plants suffered, but you might have coffee, you know. But, but especially if you eat an animal, it's like um, this is something that was woven into the fabric of creation, not just the Old Testament, but all of creation, to see that things suffer so that you might have a moment of happiness and comfort. Maybe you suffer for the sake of someone else's. That's what the church is supposed to be, right? But I mean on an like, actual literal level. Something had to die to feed you every single day and, and suffer. So, of course, Jesus talks in these terms. Like, when he's saying, eat my flesh and drink my blood, what he's saying behind that is, I need to suffer before you do that. You can't just do that. I need to suffer first. My flesh has to be torn up into edible pieces. I need to spill my blood and die. Like the the, uh, sacrifices of old. Uh, Remember how the priests in the Old Testament ate the sacrifice? Well, guess who's the priests? Who are the priests now? In the New Testament, you are. You're the priests. We are the priesthood of God. We eat the sacrifice, right? Jesus is all over that as well. He's the ultimate sacrifice who would atone for sin and then we would eat of the flesh, not of a 
um, a bull anymore, but now the, 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 the Son of God himself. We are the new priesthood who nourishes on the sacrifices. But again, behind the statement of eat my flesh, drink my blood, is I must suffer for you, for you to be saved, and you must receive my sufferings as atonement for your sins. All right, so just to circle back then to the crowd, I think what I want to do to wrap this up today, and we'll continue next week. It's one flow of thought, so it's got to end it somewhere here. But um, to circle back to the crowd's angst for a second over Jesus and his claims about himself, um, one of the problems that they're having and, and that we have is how to blend this Jesus, this John 6 Jesus, who talks in cannibalistic terms, with the other things that we think the Messiah would come to be or should be, the Son of God or the Promised One. The other things that we think the Christ should be in our life or in the world. In other words, how do you place this idea of the necessity of eating and drinking his blood right next to other things like a social agenda Jesus or a political Jesus or a rabbi Jesus, or a physical comfort Jesus. Like, you can't. You can't. They're, they're, not, they're clearly not weighted the same. Like, if, if you have all those things, like as equally sized dominoes on a table, and like, oh, yep, there's the eat my flesh and drink my blood, Jesus, and, and here's the physical comfort. Like, you can't, you'd never, you don't do that, right? It's, un, it's, 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 uncom- it's problematic, to put it lightly. Uh, to do that. But Jesus isn't intending that either. You can't look away once a guy starts talking about himself in these terms. That's the point. You can run and you can disbelieve and you can reject and many people do. We'll see that next week. But you can't ignore the prominence he gives himself and the prominence he gives his death over everything else in the Bible, everything else in your life, and everything else you think he should be, or you assumed he was. Everything. I mean, everything under the sun, including all other kinds of goodness, including everything in the Old Testament, including us, including your works, including even his miracles, and physical healings. This is what he's saying, right? Better than me multiplying bread is me dying there on the cross. They are not equal. They're not the same size dominoes on the table. You can't do that. He's not letting us do that. He's not giving us permission to do it or giving us the freedom to do that. He's hedging us in to a focused gospel. And so, even at the cost of misunderstanding, persecution, sneering, losing tons of followers on his Instagram account. He says, whoever feeds on this bread, feeds on me, will live forever. Jesus said this. And whether you've heard this a billion times or the fir- for the first time, let me just tell you, he said this. He's saying this right now in this very room. Whoever, or in other words, if you feed on me, or whoever feeds on this bread, on my flesh, will live forever. And that's really where I want to leave this passage with you today, for me too, is whatever your lot, whatever you carry, 
whatever shame or anxiety, whatever fear or doubt or disbelief, whatever you bring, whether you're good or bad, there's no qualification. Jesus says this to bad people. He says it to good people because good people aren't closer to him because you're not saved by works. So whether you're good or bad, whether you have had a good day with God or a bad day, a good week or a bad week, close to him, far from him, he says the same thing. So whatever you bring, whatever your lot, whatever you brought in today, if you take in, eat, and believe in Jesus' atoning death for your sins, you will live forever and Jesus will abide in you forever.